Well, hello everybody. I see it didn't chase you away again. This is exciting. All right. I've been waiting all weekend for this. This is my favorite talk. This is a problem because this is my expertise and I've spent my life studying these issues and you thought the dinosaur talk was long? No, I'm going to, I'll keep this within the time, but I'm just going to have to cut it off at the end when I run out of time. We have a very interesting thing happening in one aspect of science today and it's in the field of genetics. We have too much data. This is probably the first time in history we have more data than we have theory. We have, I mean, the U.S. government just started the Million Genomes Project. I had my genome sequenced. It cost me $138. It's a Black Friday special. I already have the data here on my laptop. Thousands upon thousands of people are getting full genome sequenced, and Ancestry.com alone has millions of samples. 23andMe.com has millions of samples. We know more about DNA and human history than ever before. The issue is that modern genetics has developed a set of tools that lets us test theories of history. And the Bible claims to be a book of history. Do we dare? Of course we do. But let's be careful. As we get into this issue of, of genetics and DNA and where we came from, if Adam and Eve are real, let's step through it carefully. Let's talk about recent history. That is actually a cruise ship lying on its side in New York Harbor in 1942. It's the SS Normandy. It's one of the most beautiful cruise ships ever built. It got stuck here at the outbreak of World War II, and the U.S. government was converting it into troop carrier when it caught fire. Now, why do I show you that picture? Because my great-grandfather was on that boat. He was a longshoreman in, um, in New York City in the Brooklyn Naval Yard. He's a tough old man. And he got horribly burned running in and out of the ship, carrying burned men and saving their lives. Never worked as a longshoreman again. He spent the rest of his life as a taxi driver in New York City. Not too far away, in fact, literally, you start at the Brooklyn Naval Yard, hit 10th, and go that way for maybe a mile, is one of the most iconic blocks of architecture in America. These are brownstones. These sell for millions of dollars a piece. The reason I, I took this picture, because I went and found this, because that's a picture of my grandmother right there, right there, actually. That's her grandfather. He was an immigrant from Phrygia. The Frisians are mentioned in Beowulf. They're the northern, the people that live in the northern Netherlands. He not only immigrated, he built this row of brownstones. In fact, my grandmother lived right there her entire life until she got married. Cool. Another branch of my family. This man, Torkel Torkelson. <laughs> the third. His wife, Lizzie Gorman, born in Ireland. She was, I think, 14 when they married. He was 25. <laughs> anyway, things happen like that. He was dying of tuberculosis. That's a second daughter named Jenny. Neither one of them reached the next census. These two boys would die of tuberculosis pretty soon after that. My grandfather's middle name was Edwin. Torkel Edwin Torkelson. Why Edwin? Named after Edwin Gould, the railroad tycoon. This is taken on Jekyll Island. You ever hear the, the creature from Jekyll Island? It's called the Federal Reserve. My family lived there. 
They were some of the only full-time residents of the island. Now they're working people, but apparently Edwin Gould took a liking to my great-grandfather, so they named my grandfather after him. I can't go any further than this. I mean, I've gotten into the Norwegian archives, and so I got my grandfather's father and father, whatever, but my Irish, Irish ancestry is impossible. I have no idea uh, where this lady was born or what her parents' names were. But I want to get into deep human history. How do we go deeper than our photographs can get us? Well, we can apply lots of tools. Now, I'm a nerd. You know that, right? I wear that badge very proudly. Some of my favorite subjects, genealogy, genetics, geography. Give me those things and give me Google Earth. And what am I going to do? I'm going to draw lines on the map where my people were born and connect them to where their kids are born. All those lines are one of my ancestors jumping the pond. Look at me. What area of the world do my ancestors come from? Northern Europe. Is it that obvious? Why is it that we can, and I do this all the time, I'm constantly looking at people and trying to guess where they came from. And I love talking to people when they have a, a, a non-American accent. Because I'll just quiz them, where are you from? You know, what language did you grow up speaking? It's just cool and fun conversations. But why is it that we're able to look at someone and tell from a very restricted geographic area where their ancestors came from? Why is that? And how do we explain why people look different on the world if we only came from Noah 4,500 years ago? Those six, the Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives, could they be the answers of everyone on earth today? Don't we need millions of years in natural selection and mutation to explain the origin of the so-called races? Good questions, right? Now, if you were here this morning, you saw this, but I just want to establish the fact that I am a geneticist, and I do have the right to talk about genetics. Whether I'm right or not is the second question, but my background is in DNA research. I stole genes from these animals and engineered them into these animals. That's called genetic engineering. I am a geneticist. When I finished with my doctoral program, one of the first things I did, I went to the human genome page and I hit download. And I've been writing computer programs and analyzing genomic data since about 2004. In fact, most of it's sitting right here. I have 54,000 human mitochondrial sequences in one folder. I have my own genome on here. I've got the 1,000 Genomes Project Y chromosomes. I've got uh, the Y chromosomes, the Simons Genome Diversity Project. I have massive, in fact, I, I ran out of space on my, my laptop, so I have a, a, a terabyte hard drive. I store all, store all my genetics data. Don't you? <laughs> But I'm trying to get at very important questions of human history. In the meantime, I have a lot of antagonists. And sadly, not all the antagonists are atheists. This is Dr. Francis Collins. He was the director of the Human Genome Project. That man directed the spending of $3 billion. He's right now the director of the National Institutes of Health. He was appointed by Obama and approved by Trump. He claims to be an evangelical Christian. I would never doubt that. Not my place to question someone else's spirituality or faith or their position in the kingdom of God. However, you know that adage with friends like that, who needs? He was one of the founding members of a group called BioLogos. 
now they've taken it off their website, but in the beginning, their first website, one of their, they state their claims. One of the first things to do is to criticize and contradict young earth creationism. Hey, thanks a lot, buddy. Nash, uh, not National Geographic. Christianity Today wrote an article a while back. It's called The Search for the Historical Atom. And they said this. Collins' 2006 bestseller, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. You're about to hear a scientist give you evidence for why he believes the Bible. What do you think you're going to hear? Well, let's see what he says. They say, he reported scientific indications that anatomically modern humans emerged from primate ancestors perhaps 100,000 years ago. Long before the Genesis time frame, it originated with a population number something like 10,000, not two, individuals. What are those numbers? What is that 100,000? What is that 10,000? What is he getting these numbers from? That's the standard evolutionary out of Africa scenario where humans emerged from primate ancestors, became Homo sapiens 100 to 200,000 years ago in a very small population. So I'm confused. Why is this evidence of faith? This is straight up evolutionary theory that has no room for an Adam and Eve. Other well-known Christians. This is um, on, the, on the right here. This is William Lane Craig. Famous Christian apologist. His headquarters are in Atlanta near CMI's offices. Not too far away anyway. He's a really good guy. He's done a, re a lot of really good work on some very important subjects. But when, it turns, when he turns to Adam and Eve and creation and the age of the earth, he does not, from my opinion, he does not apply the same rigorous standards of scholarship. And he's launched a couple years ago what he called the Adam and Eve Project. And did he ever consult a, someone who actually believes in the young earth? I don't think so. And the stuff he's writing is really frustrating. But he was in a debate way back in 96 with a man named Frank Zindler. I don't know if he's still alive, but he at least at the time ran a big atheist organization here in the States. And so having this debate. And Zindler in the middle of this debate, knowing that that Bill Craig believes in millions of years in evolution. He said this. He said, if there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there's no need of salvation. If there's no need of salvation, there's no need of a savior. And I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. I could have used any number of quotes from the past 150 years going all the way back to Charles Darwin's friends who essentially said the same thing. Darwin and his friends understood that if you get rid of the first atom, you get rid of the last atom. Because you can't explain where sin comes from. You can't explain where death comes from. You can't explain why Jesus hanging on a cross and dying pays for sins. There's a lot of theology in this. Did you know so much theology was involved in this Adam and Eve question? Some really critical questions for us to consider. Alright, so let's get into the question. Let me ask you a question. If Adam and Eve really did exist, what do you think they would have looked like? Tell you what, that's not Eve. <laughs> and that's not Adam. These two absolutely beautiful people. That boy is as handsome as he could be. That woman is gorgeous. They're at the opposite ends of the human color spectrum. 
Now, she is not as light as she could be because she does have a lot of pheomelanin. That's a reddish pigment. But she has almost no eumelanin. That's a brownish pigment. That boy produces as much eumelanin as a human body can possibly produce. She probably has a mutation, as all of you Europeans probably have a mutation. It's in the SLC24A gene, 245A, whatever it is. And you have two identical copies. And it is the main thing driving the light skin color in Europeans. And being that you have two identical copies, that means inbreeding. That means the Europeans came from a very small population. Huh. If we look at skin color diversity across the world, I'm about to show you something. I'm a little uncomfortable with this because this is from data prior to World War II. And essentially, all the anthropologists prior to World War II were outright racists. And it actually will curdle your stomach to read what they were writing. But data should be data, right? This is data they collected um, looking at people's skin colors around the world. It is really cool because now we get to apply modern genetics to this, things we didn't even know two years ago. Turns out that these pockets of dark-skinned people, Melanesia, Australia, southern uh, India, these places, it's the exact same letter variance as the dark-skinned people of Africa. In other words, dark skin did not need to evolve twice. It was in our population before we spread out. Oh. Also, the lighter areas, this, these colors up here, these skin colors, is the exact same genes as these people down here. You ever seen the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy? Right? The Khoisan Bushmen that live in the Kalahari Desert, they don't have really dark skin. They're the skin color of Barack Obama, whose mother was white. They're in the middle. They're nicely tan looking people. And the genes here are exactly the same as the genes up here. And here's something crazy. We have a new field called ancient DNA, which is an oxymoron because there should not be anything. The DNA should not last for thousands of years. But they keep pulling DNA out of older and old, older things. Cave bears, frozen horses, Neanderthals. Well, they pull DNA out of some caves of in, in this area of Africa, which was amazing because Africa is too hot for DNA to survive, but in a cave environment, it can survive long enough for them to sequence some DNA. And what they realized, the people that used to live here looked like this. Their genes are not here anymore. There's something in Africa, it's called the Bantu expansion. The Bantu language, you've probably heard of the Zulu Wars. The Dutch, when they got to southern Africa, they found a hundred mile wide swath of grassland that nobody lived in. They said, woohoo, free land! Because the Zulus, the forefront of the Bantu expansion, had killed off everyone with a hundred miles of their homeland. And the Dutch walked into a bloodbath. And then the English inherited it. And it's famous wars. Well, what this is was the edge of the Bantu expansion. In Africa, a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago, the people that lived here looked like this. These people were up here. The Bantus expanded eastward and southward and replaced the people who originally lived there. So if you went to Africa 2000 years ago, it wouldn't be as dark as it is today. That's funny because if you went to Europe 4000 years ago, there wouldn't be any Europeans there. Yeah, Europeans, you did the same thing. We came from here and invaded and killed off almost everyone that lived there.
We know that from ancient DNA. Because European DNA is not in the oldest uh, bones we found in Europe. Nor is it in the middle bones. The Europeans didn't get to Europe until the Bronze Age. That's the period of the judges in the Bible. They're out here. Weird. So I'm kind of guessing that if you had to take all the people in the world and pool them together, Adam and Eve are going to look somewhere in the middle. They'll have brown hair, brown eyes, and brown skin. Okay. Now within them, you could have hidden blue eyes because it's a recessive trait, blonde hair, but I don't think so. Because blue eyes, in fact, red hair, if you have red hair, you're from Scotland and Ireland. Period. <laughs> blonde hair strongly associated, not all of Scandinavia, but a band across the middle of Norway and Sweden. Blue eyes, you look at a map of blue eyes in the world, it directly parallels the Viking invasions of the Middle Ages. So these traits are quite possibly mutations that happened well after creation. Because if something is in Adam, it'll be in the whole population, obviously, right? Adam and Eve. And then it's on the ark. And it's at Babel. And then it's spread around the world. But if something is localized into a specific subgroup of people, it's probably a mutation that happened after Babel. All of you mutants, you know that, right? <laughs> Doesn't matter where you came from. Also, all of you were inbred, you know that? The reason, I asked a question earlier, how can you look at someone and know from where they came in the world, came from in the world? Because their ancestors only married their ancestors. Most people who have ever been born married someone who lived more, less than five miles away from where they lived. People keep marrying their cousins. In fact, in history, most people married a cousin. Charles Darwin married his first cousin, and all of her brothers and all of her sisters all married first cousins. Ugh. The British health, and this is not politically correct, but the British health system has estimated that most, uh, the, the majority of birth defects that they're seeing and paying a lot of money to help come from the Muslim population. Even though they're a minority, they're producing the majority of the birth defects because consanguineous marriages in Islam are still sanctioned and extremely common. And now think about it. A brother or sister is sitting there going, who's going to inherit the estate? I don't know. Let's have your son marry my daughter. Problem solved. So historically, people have done that because it keeps the money in the family. It's just not smart anymore because of mutations. I uh, drew this uh, a couple years ago. I put this in a journal of creation. The title I called, of the article is called, Inbreeding and the Origin of Races. I'm trying to explain where races come from. So I did a family tree of the 12 tribes of Israel. <coughs> Starting with Terah, the father of Abraham and Sarah. Different mothers, same father. They had Isaac, but because they're half-siblings, Isaac is genetically equivalent to their brother. Isaac marries his first cousin once removed Rebecca and first cousin twice removed Rebecca times two. It's like marrying his sister. Jacob marries his first cousin Rachel and first cousin Leah who are much closer than cousins because they all inherited Tara's DNA in all these different ways. By the time these guys are born, you know that you're 50% of each of your parents, right? You get half your mother's and half your father's DNAs in you. That means you're one quarter of each of your grandparents. See, so 50%, 25%, 12.5% of, of um, great-grandparents, 
Six and a half, six and a quarter percent of great-great-grandparents. You're about three percent of your great-great-great-grandparents. These guys should be three percent of Terra. But because they would have inherited Terra's DNA and multiple different lines, they're 20% identical. And because of the laws of genetics, half of that is exactly the same in all the brothers. So about 10% of their genome has zero variation. So if in that place there's a gene for height or skin color or the curliness of the hair, or the shape of the nose. All the brothers are going to have it. You could literally, walking down a street in ancient village, and go, oh, God, there's an Israelite right there. Pick them out of a crowd, because they will look different from everybody else. But this is happening in every village in the ancient world. And this is where races come from. The reason, race, it's not even the right word, but the reason that, that people look different is because they didn't marry everybody. They only married a few group of people. That's being erased today very quickly. In fact, I live in, in Georgia. One of the states in this country that was a very, had a lot of slavery. And race relations in Georgia have been terrible for a long time. There are still KKK sympathizers that live about 10 miles away from me. And have a storefront that says, I do not support an N-word for president when Barack Obama was president. It's just a bunch of old guys. There's no young people in that movement. The young people don't care anymore. There's more mixed race marriages in my area than I've ever seen anywhere else. Hooray. Maybe we can move past some of that old bitterness. But the reason so-called races exist is because of inbreeding. And we're all inbred to some degree. We're okay with that? Are you allowed to marry your cousin? Well, in the Bible... Adam and Eve's children would have had to marry each other. Shem, Ham, and Japheth's children would have had to marry each other. Look at the, I just showed you Abraham's family. God sanctioned that. God didn't put a restriction on marrying close kin until 2,500 years after creation during the time of Abraham. And we can see why already. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have a child. God had to miraculously intervene. Isaac and Rebecca had trouble. One of their children had hair all over. Esau. It's called the Wolfman gene. We know what causes that. If he, if that, he had the same exact thing, he had the Wolfman gene. Maybe not, but he, he, he was distinctly hairy. He was mentioned that way. Leah had weak eyes, whatever that means. We're seeing problems pop up. In David's time, in um, I think Second Chronicles, I think it's Second Chronicles, there's a list of all the sons of the giant, which would be Goliath, and who killed which son of Goliath. And one of those sons of Goliath had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. It's called polydactyly. It's a recessive trait. It only pops up in families because of inbreeding. The highest concentration in America is amongst the Amish. Because they actually, even though they're growing, they started from a very small founding group. Really cool aside, some scientists were looking at polydactyly in, in the world. They said, okay, we got the Amish gene. Where else do we find it? Oh, there's a tribe of, of Aborigines in northwest Australia. There's a high rate of polydactyly. Let's go look at them and look at their genetics. And they said, well, wait a minute. They had the same exact letter change as the Amish? Because other people have polydactyly. You know, any, any number of changes in this gene can, can, can affect the number of fingers. 
And they had the same exact letter change. That's like one out of three billion. That's a probability. They said, how can this be true? Well, they figured out a Dutch ship had crashed in northwest Australia a couple hundred years ago. And apparently one of the sailors survived. So this aborigine group has a common ancestor with the Amish. What's a race? We can't define it. You've probably seen things like this. The out of Africa theory. This is based on mitochondrial DNA. And the mitochondria are the things in all of your cells that produce energy. They have a little piece of DNA. And from all the experiments we've done, it looks like you only get them from your mother. Not your father. If you only get them from your mother, that means there's a lineage that goes all the way back to the first mother. And when they do that, the evolutionists concluded, oh, we started in Africa. But let me uh, turn this picture around a little bit. Think of this. As soon as you leave Africa, they're saying there's been a single dispersal of people in small people groups with almost no mitochondrial diversity traveling in small groups into uninhabited territory through the Middle East. Now, every one of those points is a direct prediction of the Tower of Babel account. So I think maybe we need to look into this more deeply. Well, how about this for a starting point? What if it actually started right there? Oh. You get the same effect. Now, I'm assuming that some of this is based on latent European racism. I know Darwin and his disciples and their descendants, you know, their scientific descendants for a long time were incredibly racist. And the Europeans loved the fact that the Africans lived with monkeys because they could demote the Africans to a lower grade of, of humanity. And it's awful. But this is clear in their writings and I'm so happy we've said they're wrong. And theologically, I'm glad the theologians came alongside, but also politically and socially we said, no, this is not right. But another reason for this is that there's more diversity in Africa than the rest of the world combined. Now, is that because the Africans are an older population? Or is it because they have a different set of genetics? It turns out that one of the things that controls diversity is how frequently your chromosomes recombine every generation. And it's not, we not, if we thought it was random before, it's not. It's actually controlled by a gene. It's called PRDM9. And it's a site. And we can look for sites where PRDM9 will attach. And Africans have more sites than everyone else. So therefore, because they have more recombination every generation, they harbor more diversity. They're not older. They're actually enriched. The rest of the world is depauperate. We lose genes faster than Africans do. Look at scripture here. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. You've read that before, right? Notice no common ancestry with chimpanzees. This is a very important sta statement right here. How about this? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. You've read that before, right? You know how theologically important this is? First of all, Eve is a descendant of Adam. Therefore, when Adam fell, she fell in him. Second of all, Eve wasn't taken out of his foot. Nor was she taken out of his head. She was taken out of his side. That's a beautiful picture. 
She is his equal. They have different roles. Just like God the Father and God the Son had different roles. But they're not, they're not unequal. There's a complementarianness here to creation that got ruined with sin. But it was there initially. Now, okay, as a little aside. The reason I brought up these two verses is because there's two very critical pieces of DNA. One is called the Y chromosome, and one I've already talked about is called the mitochondria. Y chromosomes, obviously, girls, you don't have one. So men only get it from their father. But because it doesn't have a matching copy, there's no recombination. We get it intact from our father. Every once in a while, a mutation happens, and that Y chromosome forms a new branch on the family tree. Mitochondria the same way. We only get it from our mothers. Men, you don't pass it on. So my mother's 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 mother was Rinsche Evers van der Vliet, who lived in northern Holland. Okay, well, actually it wasn't Holland. She lived in Frisia. I didn't pass it on to my kids. My kids got their mother's mitochondrial DNA. Men, a lady named Mary O-U-L. I don't know how to pronounce that. Named, uh, married to a guy named John French. Everyone thought she was Native American, which means, would mean that my kids, mother's 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 mother was Native American. They should have Native American mitochondria. And my wife does not have Native American mitochondria. So it was a family lore that was not true. But we have these two compartments of DNA that we can directly use to protect the, uh, test the Adam and Eve idea. Now I'm going to show you something. This took me a very long time to make. I had to get into a European database that finally, see for a long time we only had one human Y chromosome from the Human Genome Project 2001. Finally, we have thousands. Literally, two years ago is when it started. Now we have thousands. I got into this thing called the Simons Genome Diversity Project where they, they did a couple of hundred people at a very high quality. The Human Genome Project was low quality data. It's almost not usable. But high quality data, and I downloaded like 600 Y chromosomes and I made this tree. Do you see? That is a signal of a rapidly growing population. That's a signal of a population that goes back to one ancestor. Now, these are the Khoisan Bushmen and the, um, the Pygmies. They don't like to be called Pygmies anymore, but I don't know what their preferred name is. Uh, the Pygmies of Central Africa. These are Africans. These are not Africans. But look, these people live like in India, Punjab. And these Africans branch off from non-Africans. These are not Africans. These are not Africans. In fact, Genghis Khan, the Mongolian warlord, belonged to group C. So if, non, if Africans branch off from non-Africans, 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 these people didn't come from Africa. 95% of the African Y chromosomes must have originated in Asia. You ever hear that phrase, we're all Africans? Most of the Africans aren't African. Uh, R1B is my group. Q is Native Americans. O, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans. You see this, this beautiful fan? You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of a population that's been expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding. Populations that are small make little sticks that suddenly expand. But look at this. This is Europe. 80% of European men. There's Native Americans. Uh, this means that the Europeans are very young. But the crazy thing is, 
There are Y chromosomes that belong to this group south of Lake Chad in Cameroon. That's the dead center of Africa. The people there have the darkest skin on the planet. But they're related to me? White boy? In fact, um, my Irish great-great-great-grandfather came over from Ireland in the middle of the Irish potato famine. Obviously, he had my Y chromosome. But there are other people in Ireland who belong to other groups. So I could be more closely related to a man from Central Africa than to my Irish great-great-grandfather's next-door neighbor. What is a race? We can no longer define it. Now, I'm going to unpack this a little bit. I'm going to show you, I call this the broomstick model. That thing I just showed you is based on this concept. Living people are on the tips of the branches. When you see a stick, these are actually mutations that that person has that no one else in the, in the database has. And the length of the stick, the length of the branch, is proportional to the number of mutations a person carries. Often these groups go back to what's called a most recent common ancestor. It's the man who gave rise to all these people in the tree. A historical individual who really lived in history. And some of these groups have this long branch that goes back to some ancestor who founded it, but none of these other branches that must have been here, these guys had to have a couple of brothers, but they just all randomly went extinct. This happens in small populations very frequently. You, have you ever heard of the mutiny on the bounty? Okay. Unbelievable story. Captain Bly, he might have been terrible, but the, the story is unbelievable. It's a real story. What happened was the slaves in Jamaica were starving because they had eaten, they had fished out Jamaica. They were actually importing fish from, the, from um, New England to feed the slaves in Jamaica during colonial times. And so the English sent a ship to Tahiti to pick up some breadfruit trees and bring them back to Jamaica to plant breadfruit. So there'd be food for, for all the slaves. Well, the sailors weren't too happy about this because all the water was going to the trees and not to the sailors. And so they mutinied. And they put Captain Bly and a couple guys on a ship and they sailed away and they went back to Tahiti, picked up some of the girls, and went to a godforsaken rock called Pitcairn Island in the South Pacific and then burned the ship. Their descendants are still there today. And they all have the same last name, Smith. Wait, multiple men made it to the island. How come there's only one last name? Because some of the guys didn't have any sons. And in small populations, anytime you don't have a son, your Y chromosome's gone. And so what we see is a very rapid contraction of the Y chromosomes and the mitochondria and last names in that population. And you get something like this. Now, if they ever actually start to grow and become like a million strong, you'll get that pattern. But initially, it was a small population. Okay? How am I doing on time here? 10, 30, 15 minutes. I can do it. We'll see. Back to the tree. Do you see the broomsticks? There is history in this tree. There's time in this tree. There are events here. And every time you see one of these, that was a significant person in world history. We don't know their names. I bet one of them was named Shem. Ham. Japheth. 
Arfachad. Pick a biblical patriarch. They're probably here somewhere. In fact, strangely, um, there's about the same number of major branches as the number of grandsons of Noah listed in Genesis. I think it's total coincidence. Because most of these, if you have two brothers, most of them will have the identical Y chromosomes. Therefore, you have, can have two people forming a lineage, but they're identical when they start. But just looking at this. Now, notice that some of these people stick way out. Look at all these guys in group N here. This is Eskimos, by the way. And some uh, Native American, uh, southern, southern south of, of Alaska, Native Americans. But notice how long these sticks are. And as one guy sticks way out, he has more mutations than his cousins in the same amount of time because they all go back to the same person. If one branch can have more mutations than other branches, this thing called the molecular clock doesn't exist. If there's no molecular clock, you can't date these events. If you can't date the events, I can put any clock on here I want. And if I take the number of mutations, and if I figure one mutation every other generation, I can explain all that in biblical time. You don't need millions of years. Wow. Now, this circle is circling places where the sons of Ham basically uh, were said to have gone in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. A lot of Jewish people um, have group, are in group J. Now it's not J for Jewish, it's just a total fluke. But a lot of Jewish people belong to group J, which would mean that this right here might be Shem. Which would leave this as Japheth. Is that true? I don't know, but it sure is fun to speculate. That means that Noah would be in the middle here somewhere. Now, the evolutionary um, atom, Y chromosome atom, comes off at this point here. Somewhere about here. Because what they do is they take the place where from this point to here and to the farthest in this direction, that's the halfway point. They assume the molecular clock that's where the out of Africa idea comes from. But if there's no molecular clock, Adam could be here, which places him in the Middle East. Interesting, huh? Is it true? I don't know. I'm going to show you now another thing I did using the mitochondrial family tree. Do you see, again, Rapidly expanding population go back to a single lady. Now again, uh, these are some of the African groups. Uh, these are Asians, other Asians. Uh, these are Europeans. I'm in group H. Most of you Europeans are in group H. But look at this. Look at how these branches are short and these branches are long. Some Europeans have more mutations than others. Now, it doesn't mean you're a mutant. Because we're talking about this many mutations in a genome that's as big. If you've got 100 extra mutations compared to someone else, divided by 3 billion, the percent difference is almost zero. So we're not saying that some people are decrepit. We're just saying that some people have picked up more letter changes than others. It's not a big deal. But it happens within groups. Boom, 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 boom. Eve is here somewhere. And we don't need millions of years to explain it. So the Bible says, one male ancestor... One female ancestor. That's not a requirement of evolutionary theory. But it is of the Bible. And it happens to be true. 
The Bible says, I could add this, our Y chromosome mitochondrial ancestor lived about 6,000 years ago, plus or minus a couple hundred years, fine, about 6,000 years ago. We can take all that data and explain it in 6,000 years. After millions of years, you would get a lot more diversity than we see, which is why you had that 100,000 year number in the, um, the Francis Collins quote. In evolutionary terms, 100,000 years is yesterday. Our mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosome Adam are extremely recent in history for the evolutionist. But when you put real world, see what they do is they take the difference between humans and chimpanzees, they count up the number of differences, and they divide by six million years, and that gives them a rate of change. And you apply that rate of change, and you get about 100,000, 200,000 years. But if you actually take a laboratory measurement of a rate of change, and you, you apply that to the data, you can get six or 7,000 years. So what are you going to trust? Historical reenactment or laboratory data? And now we can answer other questions. Questions like about Neanderthal man. When I say Neanderthal, what do you think? Half monkey, stupid, carrying a big club, dragging his lady by the hair. I mean, how many images of Neanderthal do you have in your head? Do you think upright or stooped over? Do you think smart or dumb? Do you think bigger brains than modern man on average or smaller brains? <laughs> yeah, they had big brains. They were strong. They were tough. They buried their dead with beads and ochre and flowers. They painted in caves. They made musical instruments out of deer antler. They searched the landscape for, rare, for rare minerals and ground them up, looks like for makeup. Everywhere we find Neanderthal remains, we find tar balls made of birch bark. It took us forever to figure out how. What they did was they had fire. Oh, Neanderthal had fire. And they would peel strips off a birch tree and curl it up into a cone and put it at just the right place in the fire. And it would boil off. It smelled really good at first. It boil off all the, all the stuff and would boil down into a blob of tar. And while the rest of the world was taking deer guts and tying their spear points to their spear shafts, Neanderthals were using a super glue made out of birch bark to do the same thing. Neanderthals knew which species of the willow family had aspirin in the bark and which species did not. I thought these guys were primitive. No, they're human beings. In fact, um, modern depictions of Neanderthal look something like this. Why did, um, this, they, you never see one of those shows where they take a skull and they put clay and hair and eyeballs on it and said, this is what the person really looked like. Right? I love that stuff. How come he doesn't look like half a monkey? How come he has green eyes, light hair, freckles? Because of DNA. Because we've been able to pull DNA out of some of the best preserved Neanderthal bones. And when we've done that, everything exploded. First of all, a lot of Neanderthals had light features. In fact, there, some people are saying we probably got light skin and things like that. Maybe from Neanderthals. Whoa. Europeans, I mean we. Europeans, sorry. I'm not trying to exclude anybody. But also, after they sequenced the Neanderthal genome... 
which was a monumental feat in itself, they realized the Neanderthal genome is sitting right in this room. 60% of the Neanderthal genome is carried in people right here. It's found all over the world. They used to say it's not in Africa, but a new paper just came out saying, no, there's Neanderthal DNA in Africa also. All of us have Neanderthal ancestry. Well, remember the biological species concept? If two things can interbreed, they're the same species. They're the same species. So who are these? This is a group of people that made it up into Europe and Asia right after Noah's flood and before the Ice Age. They struggled. They never retained a large population size. We can look at the genetic diversity within them. It's really low. They estimated that there might have been as few as 5,000 Neanderthals at the maximum spread over 3,000 miles. That means everybody's marrying their sister. They've sequenced several Neanderthal genomes now. I was really skeptical, skeptical about the first one, but they've got enough of them now that it, it's a good, robust sequence. We know what, they, what genes they were carrying. There's another group of people. It's called, they're called Denisovans. Named after Denisov a cave in, um, in Russia, eastern Russia. It's funny because Neanderthals are named after the Neanderthal Valley, the Neander Valley which was named after Joachim Neander, the famous hymn, hymn writer. And the Denisovans are named after St. Denis, who used to live in this cave. It's kind of funny. Christians taking a mark on anthropology. But the Denisovans, we only know them from a finger bone and a couple of teeth. We don't have a skeleton, but we have a whole genome. And they're almost as different from Neanderthals or Neanderthals are different from us. But then in that same cave, they found a woman's skeleton. She had a Neanderthal father and a Denisovan mother. Now, we know that, that Denisovans, Neanderthals, and modern humans interbred. Okay. But what do you think the probability is of you actually finding that individual? The probability of any individual being preserved is maybe one out of a million. And you found... Or maybe... There really hasn't been that much time. And the skeletons we're finding are about all the Neanderthals that ever lived. But the problem is, an in, no, not the problem, an interesting thing is, the Neanderthal part of this girl buried in his cave in eastern Russia is not the same as the Neanderthal buried three feet away from her. The Neanderthal part was related to the Neanderthals of Croatia, a thousand or more miles away. If you were in Croatia, and you're going to walk into Russia, the possibility of you finding Denisova Cave in the Altai is like zero. You would never find it unless you already knew where it was. So it looks like the Neanderthals had a trading network amongst them from Spain to Eastern Russia. Cool. These are human beings. Welcome them to the family tree. They're also your ancestors. Now, you doesn't think much. You think you're 3% Neanderthal. Some of you might be a little less, some of you a little more. 3% doesn't sound like much until you realize that for every 100 ancestors, three of them were Neanderthal. Weird. I'm going to wrap up here. Start with a quote from a famous geneticist named uh, Luis Quintana Mercy. He said this, he says, now I, got, I use a big word, phenotypic means the way you look. We all look different, that's our phenotype. The genes that explain the phenotypic differences between populations 
only represent a tiny part of our genome, confirming once again the concept of race from a genetic standpoint has been abolished. Cool. The geneticists finally caught up with scripture. Because you see, Colossians 3.11 says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. In Christ there are no racial divisions. Look at Isaiah 59.20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. That word redeemer is the same word used in the book of Ruth. The idea, Ruth had sold her land and spent the money. She wants her land back. She owes the guy money. She's got no money. So a kinsman stepped in and paid her debt. Oh, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He stepped in and paid our debt that we owe to God. Uh, wait a minute, I'm not Jewish. How can this Old Testament concept of kinsman redeemer apply to me? It's because I'm related to Jesus through Adam. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. With the result that in Ephesians 2, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility. I cringe when I, shoo, I whistled. That was cool. I cringe when I read the history of my ancestors. They were disgusting people. They were evil, they were wicked, they were treacherous. My pagan, Viking, and Celtic ancestors knew nothing about the events of the Bible. They knew nothing about the God of the Bible. They knew nothing about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the Jews. They knew nothing about this man named Jesus, or what his significance was about to become. They lived in spiritual darkness. But my creator sought me out. I do not deserve to be counted in this number. Nor do any of you. And yet we can be. Because our redeemer. Is our brother. And he lived the perfect life that we cannot live. Because that in the garden when Adam fell. God demanded a blood penalty for sin. And you know what? He doesn't accept your blood because it's tainted. But our perfect Redeemer hung on that cross because God said death must pay for sin. He had to die to pay that penalty. And the only way that penalty could be applied to someone else is with perfection. So when the blood of Christ covers us, we are perfect in God's eyes. He doesn't see our sin. He sees the blood of the perfect spotless Lamb of God. Did you know that genetics was going to get into salvation? There's a lot of other issues, subjects. Pick one and dig in. If you missed that opportunity to sign up for Creation Magazine, we have run out. Woohoo! It's called job security for me. Anyway, um, if you'd like still to get Creation Magazine, we can set you up and we'll send you all the gifts that I promised earlier, which is the magazine. And for two-year subscription to the magazine, then there's two DVDs. We'll, we'll just mail it to you, our cost, no problem. We'd love to do that. Um, 
I'm not going to give another Mag promo here, so I'm going to skip over these things. If you really like this genetic stuff, I've got a couple of DVDs out there. One is called Mitochondria Leave and the Three Daughters of Noah. I gave this at a, a, one of our super conferences in Australia. I'm trying to show that Adam and Eve, Noah's flood, and the Tower of Babel are in the human genome. And the evolutionists discovered it for us. That was fun. <laughs> the high-tech cell is, is called that because my boss said I couldn't use the title genome on the cover because no one would buy it. Anyway, the high-tech cell. I am trying to explain as a geneticist how the human genome works. But no one knows how it works because it's too complicated. It defies all of our expectations. That junk DNA idea, man, that was from the dark ages of genetics, like the 1970s. It's dead. And I compare the human genome to a computer. And very rapidly, this computer gets so complicated, we could never build something like this. Because God is the ultimate engineer. We're copycats. And our computer systems are nothing compared to the computer called the human genome. Here's Evolution's Achilles Heels. Uh, there's a whole chapter on genetics that I wrote. A lot of materials there. Here's another very interesting book called Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome. This is written by a dear friend of mine named John Sanford. When I was in graduate school making these fluorescent fish, we used to laugh. Man, if we only had $3 million, we could buy one of those gene guns. You know what a gene gun is? It's a 22 short with gold beads, microscopic gold beads that have been soaked in a DNA solution and literally you put seeds in this thing and you go blam and you shoot the gold particles through your sample and the DNA strips off inside. It was the first time anyone ever able to make a transgenically uh, modified plant because you have to get the DNA into the seed. John Sanford invented that because he wanted to feed the world by the way. That's where GMOs come from. Noble intentions. Don't shoot the messenger. I did not know it, but at this time, he had just become a Christian from a hard-bitten atheist. He actually went to a church because his marriage was falling apart, and he went for marriage counseling. And both he and his wife got saved. And now they're one of the most loveliest couples, the most dedicated to evangelism and um, helping young Christians I've ever seen. But about five years before he retired from Cornell, and this is world-famous geneticist now, he becomes a creationist. Oh, his colleagues hated this. And he writes this book called Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome. It's an insider's guide to genetics using no mathematics. He's got some really cool illustrations. His little red wagon turning into the, um, the USS Enterprise is a brilliant illustration. His Princess and the Pea illustration, man, I saw that. I was like, oh, this guy's brilliant. And uh, I had no idea, but I've actually been working for him for 13 years now. <laughs> He's a dear friend of mine, a super duper mentor for me. Um, and this book is a highly recommended for anyone getting into biology, genetics, science. It's a really good read. In fact, non-technical people also have enjoyed it much, so you don't have to be a total nerd. I'll leave you with this. Final time. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. How? By always being prepared to make a defense. To anyone who asks you, now if they don't ask you, you don't have to do it, but they ask you, you have to give them a defense for a reason, for the hope that's in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect. Because being a jerk is usually not a good testimony. But we can stand confidently 
and competently on the word of God and defend our faith even in, in front of very hostile people. And you know what? Since they've never heard what you're about to say, they have absolutely no clue and you might just set them on their back foot because they think you're stupid rubes. They think you're ignorant hicks. You realize that the hard-bitten evolutionary atheist thinks the reason you believe in God is because you have a genetic mutation that you inherited from your fish and monkey ancestors to help them have babies. That's the only reason why there's theology or people believing in an afterlife. It's because it's a reproductive strategy. That's what you're dealing with. And yet the answer is that you might be able to provide them with just a little bit of study. Might flip one of them over. Who knows? But even if it doesn't, at least you can provide a testimony that you're called to provide. Thank you very much.